So let's take our Bibles then and we'll turn to Isaiah, uh, the ninth chapter, and we'll start with verse 2 and read down through verse 6. Isaiah chapter 2, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, and the, and the peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, again, this passage of Scripture, I'm, I'm sure, is familiar to many of us, to all of us. Uh, it would not be uncommon if during this, uh, this coming week, if you were even to go into a store and see something like, unto us a child is born, in, you, in the, just the, the decoration of the store, we might say. But this passage of Scripture, while we want to take a look at it from the perspective of the birth of Christ, I want to make sure that you understand the, the real setting of this passage of Scripture. Many of you may have read or read along with me in the earlier part of this uh, reading and been somewhat confused because the, 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 the two sections really almost don't seem to go together. We have this emphasis on warfare. We have this emphasis on yokes being broken. And then we have the emphasis on the son being given, the child being born. What is all this about? Well, as I said before, this passage of scripture is set in the context of conflict. It is set in the, con, uh, in the context of judgment. And one of the things that we see, and we saw this in every one of the passages that we've looked at already this month, that many, if not all, of the messianic promises, the messianic prophecies, are given in the context of conflict and judgment. Even in the passage in Genesis chapter 3, the context of conflict was the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the, uh, of the serpent. In Micah chapter 5, it was the same thing. We saw in Micah chapter 5 that there was this impending doom coming upon the people of Judah and that help would come for Judah, not from the great city of Jerusalem, which may be expected, but from the unexpected place of Bethlehem. You remember how we said there that there's that sense in which God so oftentimes gives the greatest of deliverances from the most unlikely of places. There's a, there are those there, there is that theme within the redemptive purposes of God that so oftentimes what he does is when the situation is bleakest, he comes forth in the most glory. The people who sat in darkness, Isaiah says, saw a great light. And the darkness that they are up against is the darkness of impending doom, the darkness of judgment that is coming upon them. That's kind of interesting here because one of the things that I hope to develop here, uh, maybe not fully, but at least I want you to be aware of it so I'll be mentioning it mentioning it maybe two or three times, is not only the fact that the messianic prophecies are given in the context of judgment and in the context of conflict, 
but in the answer or in the hope that those messianic promises contain, the promise transcends the immediate conflict. The promise transcends the immediate conflict. So there is Judah in chapter 9. And what we're going to find is that Judah, the, the, the situation that it was in is that the northern kingdom of Israel, those of you that have been coming to the evening services, you kind of are following us now. You know that the kingdom of Israel was split after, after Solomon and you knew that the, that the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah sometimes were in conflict with one another. Well, this is one of those times. Well, the kingdom of Israel was in league with Syria and they had planned together to remove the king of Judah, a legitimate descendant of David, wicked man by the name of Ahaz, and we're going to take a look at just how wicked he was, wicked man by the name of Ahaz, they were going to remove him from the kingdom of Judah, and they were going to set up a puppet king instead. All right? That's the backdrop. And there's all this difficulty. And so when God gives reassurance to the people of Judah... <clears throat> he gives reassurance by way of not merely addressing the specific context, but by promising a ruler who has an everlasting kingdom. By promising a ruler who will bring an everlasting peace. By promising a ruler whose days will never end. You see, the promise transcends the immediate situation. Why does God do that with all these prophetic promises? Because he wants you to understand that while the promise was given in an historical context, oftentimes primarily political and religious, the answer that he is giving to man's problem transcends political issues. Man's darkest need, or me, man's darkest uh, um, uh, situation is not the political situation that befalls him, befalls him or her. Man's darkest situation is the issue of sin. And so when messianic promises are given, they are applying not only in the, in the immediate context to the political situation, they are reaching out to the spiritual situation. And that's why we see these passages of Scripture in the Old Testament applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we see a passage of Scripture like Isaiah chapter 7, 14. Again, for a, 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 a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. We can make a case that in Isaiah 7, 14, there, were, there was an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy in part. But the true fulfillment comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the greatest oppression that man faces is not an invading army. As dreadful as that would be, the greatest oppression that men and, men and, men and women face is the reality of sin. And so when God sends a Messiah, that Messiah will deliver from the oppression of sin. You see, why we, you see why we will not get away from Christmas? You see why we will not reduce Christmas to the mere exchanging of gifts? But did I mention a gift? Oh, this passage of Scripture has something about a gift in it. Because it is the gift of the Father, of His own Son to sinners. And what I hope to do is I hope to show that to you here in this passage of Scripture as we work through. Well, we've already said uh, some things here about the setting of this passage of Scripture. A couple of other things I want you to be aware of. You do need to be aware that, that the book of Isaiah as a whole is written to a sinning people. 
It is written to a sinful nation. Uh, Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 1 verse 4 reads as follows. God is saying to the people, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, for they have forsaken the Lord and they have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger and they have gone away backwards. This is again, if I can put it this way, this is the opening to the book of Isaiah. This is the opening of God's case against the people of Judah and against the people of Israel. They have forsaken him and they have gone backwards. How does God see his people? Oh, sinning nation. Ah, sinning people. You see again, God is seeing them in their sin. And the whole thing that we see in this book of Isaiah will all be set within that context. Well, as I said before, it is interesting to see how many times when God addresses the immediate situation in which this book was written, his promises go beyond the immediate context. And the fulfillment is amazing. Again, listen to a passage of scripture like Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This famous passage of scripture is given to a people who are in sin. And do you notice how the, the scope of the promise transcends the immediate situation? It addresses the immediate situation. It gives peace to the people of Israel when they are upon their repentance. But it goes beyond. That's what God does. He goes beyond. How does Paul put it? Now unto him. Who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you are to ask or think. You see, there's more. You see, here is God blessing you in this life. And there's more. There's heaven. Here is God blessing you in heaven. And there's more. There's the continuing, un there's the continuing unfolding of his person to you. You see, there's a sense in which with God there's always more. God is always transcending whatever situation we find ourselves in. Another passage of scripture that brings out again this transcendence of, of the promises of God is from our own passage. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, his father, and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Again, we have to get, we're going to get here very shortly to just how wicked a man Ahaz was. He probably was the second most wicked king in Judah's history. Uh, uh, surpassed only by Manasseh. And that man was a flat-out disaster. But he was converted in the end. He was converted in the end. Not so with Ahaz. But again, this idea, listen again how God transcends the, 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 the current setting. Isaiah 65, 17, as Isaiah is closing out the prophecy, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Do you see how God transcends can I say it? Our problems with the fullness of his promise. He speaks to a sinning nation. Ah, oh, sinful nation. Ah, oh, sinful people. And what does he do? He gives them prophecies that answer the situation that they are in. He comes to their defense in the day that they are in. But the promises go way beyond. And this, I'm telling you, prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because we read in Isaiah 7.14, A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And again, whatever that, sign, whatever that son was as a sign, we see a greater fulfillment of it in the person of Jesus Christ. 
This idea of a, of a kingly rule, a reign of peace, whatever we may see on the earth, a reign of peace. In the time of Rome, you, many of you know, there was the, the Pax Romana, where again, there was no war, no real war going on. Why? Because Rome's authority was, uh, was final, so to speak. But there's coming a time when true peace will reign on the earth. I create a new heavens and a new earth. We hear this passage of scripture again, don't we? There you are reading the book of Revelation and you read again. I create a new heavens and a new earth. Again, the promise of Isaiah coming to pass in the future. God transcending the immediate situation with the great promises of Christ. Now, why is that? Because as I said before, brothers and sisters, our greatest issue, our greatest problem is not the oppression of of political men. It's not the oppression of of economic issues. It's not the the oppression of any kind of civil strife. All these things are disasters for people to go through. But the greatest oppression is the oppression that is brought about by sin. And that's why we read concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.21, he shall, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save their people, his people, from their sins. What is the great act? What is the great activity of Jesus Christ? Is it bringing deliverance to, to the nation of Judah? It was that. It's more than that. Why do you think when, when Isaiah opens up in this, uh, in this uh, uh, ninth chapter, in the second verse, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light? Why do you think in the Gospels that passage of Scripture is referred to Jesus Christ? There was Jesus Christ in the same area, in the north of Israel, in Galilee, that was oftentimes under the dominion of Gentile, uh, Gentile powers. But the Scriptures are able to say to us, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. What kind of a light was it? It was the light of the gospel. The light of the gospel that shines out against the darkness of human sin. Again, John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist understood this. The next day John seeth Jesus coming and saith, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What if he would have said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the oppression of Rome? It almost sounds, did somebody chuckle? <laughs> because it almost, yeah, it almost sounds like, What? What an anticlimactic thing that would be. But the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, you see this largeness, this transcendence in the work of Christ. This will be the theme, this will be the song of heaven. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now this is what the people in heaven say. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see, this is what God is aiming at. When he promises a Messiah, when he promises, when he promises to deliver his people, the transcendent reality is that he is delivering us, not from political hardship, economic hardship, or any other kind of hardship. He is delivering us from the hardship of sin. Let me read this. The Messianic promises and prophecies always transcend their original setting. Because God, through his Son, is doing more than giving political deliverance and salvation to Judah. He is bringing spiritual deliverance and salvation to all who put their faith in a child that was born and in a son that was given. You see, this is what this passage of Scripture is setting before us. Yes, we thank God for the historical deliverance that came upon Judah. You know why? Because it was in God's preservation of Judah. The Messiah was able to come forth. 
Oh, what a disaster it would have been if, that, if, if the line of David would have been wiped out. It was impossible, though. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts was going to perform this. David's line could not be wiped out. It can be threatened, and many times it was. But God kept his promise. God kept his people. So what I want to do then is we come back to the passage of Scripture now specifically. Because I want to consider this promised deliverer who will not only save Judah from, from her political enemies, but who will, because of the greatness of his person and because of the intention of the Father, save all who are oppressed by sin, Satan, and self through the placing of their faith in the Savior. As we turn our thoughts concerning this passage from its original setting to the setting that we are most familiar with, we can see in this passage, as I said before, that this passage reveals to us the Father's Christmas gift to sinners. The Father's Christmas gift to sinners. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to trivialize this passage of Scripture. I mean it sincerely. That's why I'm trying to give emphasis to the historical setting. That's why I want to bring in all the theological implications of it. Very large, very huge. Again, the promise transcending the, the immediate setting. It's wonderful. But I think we can treat this passage of Scripture under that heading that this passage gives to us the Father's gift to sinners at Christmas. And the first thing I want you to be aware of by way of this gift that the Father gives to sinners is that this gift is not a gift that is received by fleshly hands, but it's a, but it's a gift that's received by hearts of faith. You see, it's not a gift that we can receive with our hands, so to speak. Gifts that are given, we, we take and we receive. And, and sometimes we picture faith. How do we picture faith? By, well, faith is just the open hand receiving the promises of God. And it works as an illustration. But you see, there's a sense in which this gift that the Father offers is not a gift that is received with, with the hands of flesh, but rather it is a gift that is received with hearts of faith. And we see this in many passages of Scripture, don't we? John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. What is receiving Christ that is believing on his name? You know the passage in Romans chapter 10, verse, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Again, you see, the gift of the Father is not received with the hands of flesh, but with, but, excuse me, but with the heart of faith. The scriptures make this clear. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And so you see, the, the gift that the Father offers you is a, is a gift that isn't received by, by, by fleshly hands. It's a gift that is received by the heart of faith. You know, this king who we've been dealing with, I haven't really given you much information on him yet. This king that we've been dealing with, this wicked king, you know, he was... He was encouraged to faith as well by God. God had to say to this wicked king, Oh, Ahaz, you must believe. God had to say to this wicked king, This gift that I have for you, this deliverance that is promised, must be something that's believed. Where do we see this? Just turn back in your Bible a few pages to, to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. And here is the prophet speaking, uh, again, God speaking through the prophet. And notice what he says. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. And here's where the challenge to faith comes in. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. 
The ESV says something similar. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, what the prophet is saying is this. You must believe the promises of God. They are given to be embraced. They are given to be received. They are given to be held on to. Yes, Judah had hard days in front of it. Yes, Judah had days in which it must go to war. But before it did anything else, it must embrace the promises of God. And here's God saying to this wicked man, and what a wicked sinner he was. And this is where we can kind of get into some of these details about wicked Ahaz. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you see a pair, you see the account of Ahaz's reign in 2 Kings chapter 16, um, throughout the entire chapter, actually. But listen to just a, a couple of verses from this 16th chapter to give you a sense of how wicked this man was. The summary of his life is given in verse 3 of chapter 16. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now that might not sound like much, but what you have to understand is this, is that the kings of Israel were, were hopelessly addicted to worshiping the true God under false forms. That was their primary sin. They never were moving away, if I can put it, uh, how, how should I say it? They, they, they were not moving away by way of understanding that God and God alone was to be worshipped, except during the time of Ahab when they, when they embraced Baalism. It is the attempt to worship the true God, but in a false way. Jeroboam setting up these false calves. Jeroboam Jeroboam instituting his own priesthood. Jeroboam setting up his own holy days. And so when we read of a king of Judah walking after the kings of Israel, that's significant. Because it it means that the kingdom and the kingly line, that if nothing else had at least held on to the true form of worship, was now giving that up as well. It was a serious sin. But that's not all. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Here was a king who was so wicked in his ways that in a religious manner he sacrificed his own children. So not only did he give up the, uh, the true worship of the true God in true ways, he embraced idolatry itself. And look at the way in which he embraced it. Verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant. Come and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now you remember, the, 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 those who were opposing the kingdom of Judah were Assyria and Israel. God was given all these promises to, 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 to Ahaz. God says to Ahaz, ask me a sign. It's an amazing thing when God says to a man, ask me a sign. You see, you've heard me say this before. God, when it's all said and done, just wants you and me to take him at his word. And he will go to great lengths to confirm his word in our thinking. And so he says to Ahaz, ask me a sign. And Ahaz, this wicked man, and all the commentators, this next line, they all say the same thing. Ahaz, this wicked man, in in, in a grand display of false piety, says, I'll not test the Lord, and I'll not ask for a sign, neither will I test the Lord. Understand this, brothers and sisters, when God tells you something from his word, you do it. And so here was Ahaz being told of God to ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I'm not going to do it. God says, I I myself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. God is confirming his word to Ahaz. But what does Ahaz do? He gets up and he turns around and he goes to the king of Assyria. And in the day, 
Again, it's one of these things where politically, from a human perspective, it seems to make sense. I have these two nations against me. I'll go to the, I'll go to the regional power and I'll, get, I'll gain an alliance with him and I'll have him come and rescue me. And you know the application at this point. How many times do our worldly ways seem to look more intelligent than the ways of God? How many times does it seem from our own human perspective and we know what God says about it, but if I do it my own way here and I do it my own way here, it'll all work out. We're nothing better than Ahaz in that moment. Ahaz, this wicked king, it goes on. Listen to what we see here. In verses uh, 10 of 2 Kings uh, 16, And when King Ahaz went to Damascus uh, to meet the king of Assyria, he saw that there was an altar at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all of its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that the king, with all the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. This wicked king, he sees this pagan altar. And this wicked king having the altar of the true God in front of him, what does he do? He casts it aside and he embraces all this, all this idolatry. And he corrupts the priesthood as well. Uriah, a man of God, what's happening to you? Uriah, where is your spiritual backbone? Uriah, why, why are you turning this blind eye to what you know God has called you to do? But even to this wicked king, those words need to be heard again. If you believe, you'll be established. You see, God calls even wicked sinners to believe his promises. And that's why we say in this passage of scripture, this passage tells us God's Christmas gift to sinners like you and me. And now what I want you to see from this passage of scripture is how God encourages us to embrace the gift that he gives. God's full of encouragement in this matter, isn't he? That's why he says in verse 6, for unto us a child was born. Now again, in the context here, you have to understand what's happening. Again, the, uh, if you go back to, uh, to, verse, uh, to chapter 8 uh, and verses 18 through 20 and actually starting back uh, uh, to, uh, to, verse, uh, uh, to verse 5 where you see uh, the, uh, the conquest of the opposing nations, what you see happening is this, is that this darkness is coming upon uh, the land. It's the darkness of, of, uh, of this impending doom. And what you see Isaiah doing is as, as Isaiah is taking his stand in faith. And again, he says this, and look at verse 19 of chapter 8. And when they say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living, uh, for the living to the dead? Now, what's the context here? Ahaz has lost his mind. He's going after this dead God who can't hear. And these, these people are, or these people are, are saying to him that they, that they should seek this false God. And Isaiah is saying, are you, have you lost your mind? And Isaiah is saying a word that still needs to be heard today. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Isaiah taking the stand in faith. Oh, how we thank God for a man like that. In the day of apostasy, standing strong. In the day of apostasy, able to offer to sinners the hope of the the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again... The whole idea, look at, look at verse 21. And they shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry, and it shall come to pass when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse the king and their God. 
and look upward, and they shall look to the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness and anguish. Again, it's a time of a judgment on the people of God. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Here you see God's promises breaking in. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Now what I want you to see here is in verses 4, 5, and 6, we have three reasons why the victory of God is going to be assured. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. God is breaking the yoke of, of the Syrian and of the, of the northern kingdom. Every, for every battle of the warrior is confused with a confused noise. Uh, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. What does that mean? It means that God is going to bring military defeat on those who are rising up against them. So God is going to break the yoke. God is going to bring about military victory. And oh, by the way, God is going to transcend the immediate situation with a promise that goes far beyond. Four. Three fours there. In verse four, verse five, and verse six. Four unto us a child is born. Well, you see, this is, the, this is the Father's Christmas gift to sinners. For unto us a child is born. And I want you to see something about this Christmas gift that God gives the sinners. I was listening to a man read a sermon by, uh, by uh, an old uh, Puritan by the name of uh, Thomas Boston. And Thomas Boston got a little more uh, poetic than I thought that Thomas Boston would be able to do. Uh, he said this, he says, When you look at this passage of Scripture, you see that in this passage of Scripture... Uh, God has done with this gift what we do with our gifts. And that is when we give our gifts, we wrap them. And in this passage of Scripture, God has wrapped the gift of His Son in human flesh. God has wrapped the gift of His divine Son in this flesh. We sing about this, don't we? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the eternal deity. You see, here is God giving the gift of His Son to humanity. And the way that His Son comes to humanity is as a man. You see, this speaks to us of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ comes for sinners. And did you see this passage of Scripture? Did you see the, how, how, verse, uh, how verse 6 starts out? It's for unto us. You may or you may not remember that when we looked at Micah chapter 5, verse 2 last week, one of the things that we saw God the Father saying about the coming of Messiah, there shall, forth, there shall come forth one unto me who shall be from everlasting. And last week we emphasized the point that when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he came for the glory of the Father. Rightly so that we would emphasize that. He says there in John chapter 8, the Father loves me because I always do the things that please him. We read of him in Hebrews chapter 10, Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will. And we would fully understand that the Son of God would come to do the Father's will. We emphasize that in the passage in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But when God gives a gift to sinners, one of the things he wants us to see and understand is that gift is unto us. That Jesus Christ in his humanity takes up our cause. He takes up my cause. He takes up your cause. You say, how does he take up my cause? How does he take up your cause? He takes up your cause in the fact that he takes your sins upon himself. He takes my sins upon himself. And he dies as a substitute for sinners. You see, unto us, a child is born unto us, those who are in need of a Savior. Yes, God has wrapped His Son in flesh and gave Him to us. And so again, the wonder and the beauty of this package wrapped in flesh. You see, it was interesting too because Boston went on to say, 
Usually when we wrap a gift, we wrap it in that which is lesser than the gift itself. And he says that human flesh is, is less than, than, than deity. He says, but whenever we wrap it, we make sure that we wrap it in a clean uh, wrapping, that we don't wrap it in a dirty or flawed wrapping. And same thing, here is this one come for us who is perfect humanity, who is sinless humanity, who has not the stain of Adam upon him, who in all of his will and all of his desires is focused on and is directed toward his heavenly father. So this child born and this son given. And of course, we know that in this, uh, in this reference here, the son being given has great implications, larger than the immediate context. And why do I say that again? Because you see, it's interesting that the word child that's used here in Isaiah chapter uh, 9, uh, verse 6, is a word that really means a, a male child. It means a boy. So it's not just a child in the, in the generic sense. It's a boy that is given. And so the question is asked, if a boy is given, why is there an emphasis on, excuse me, if, if, if a boy is born, why is there an emphasis upon a son being given? Because this is one of the great messianic designations of the Messiah, that he is the son of God. You know, it's very interesting to see in the scriptures, and this is why I say, you look at those messianic promises, and they bleed out in ways that just, as I said, they transcend the immediate situation. They're, lar- they're larger in their answer than the situation that they, that they address. And so there is in Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm, what do we see? Kiss the son lest he be angry. You see all the opposition that humanity makes against the son. But God has set his son on his holy hill. And so this reference then to a son being given has all the implications of that messianic terminology. Again, of course, we can't look at this word son and, and not engage all the New Testament concepts. You see how many times God refers to his son in the New Testament. You know the passage. God so loved the world that he gave what? He gave his only begotten. He gave his uniquely born son, his only begotten son. Other passages of scripture along the same, along the same lines with the passage we looked at in, uh, from Second uh, Peter. Now there on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Oh, how God loves his son. You see, another passage of scripture, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. For he who spared not his own son. And so whenever God speaks about his son, there has to be these, 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 these words to describe it. These, uh, uh, these, these adjectives. He is the only begotten. Again, he is, the, he is this one. He is this one who is beloved by the father. He is this one who's, who is the father's own son. And that's the gift that the Father has given the sinners at Christmas. You see, there's a sense in which this is the message that we're able to bring. We're able to bring this idea that in this time of exchanging of gifts, oh, the gift that Father gave to sinners. And you may say, what kind of a sinner? Well, sinners as bad as Ahaz. Sinners who would be as wicked enough to burn their own children. Sinners who would be as bad enough as to turn their back on God. Those are the sinners that God gave His Son for. Oh, you see this passage of scripture. It's God's, it's God's Christmas gift to sinners, is it not? And so again, we see here something about the nature of this gift. It's his own son. But we also see more than that. We see what this son and who this, what he's all about. You see, this, this son is a ruler. We learned that last week too. Again, in the, in the passage of scripture, in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, there shall come forth one uh, from, you know, uh, uh, from, from, uh, from Bethlehem uh, who is to rule his people Israel. 
You see again the same ideas here. We see it here in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Look here in verse 7. The increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with judgment and justice forever and ever. What do we see here? We see this child that was given is given to rule. The child that was given is given to reign. The child that was given is given in order that he might be your ruler, your governor, your prince, your savior, your Lord. It's an amazing thing to see here that one of the things that we always have to emphasize and understand is that when God offers this gift to sinners, he offers this gift to sinners on his own terms. You see, many may be enamored with the concept of God giving a gift, but it's only the heart of faith that embraces this gift that will rule over them, that embraces this gift that will see him as governor and ruler, that embraces this gift that will see him as sovereign Lord. What a sovereignty he has. It's a sovereignty that's that's going on and on. Did you see how the passage again reads? Of the increase of his government. The increase of his government. My friends, we look around and we think, is the church increasing? (laughs) We look around and think, doesn't look like the church is increasing. But the government of our Lord Jesus Christ and the extension of his kingdom is increasing. I'm saying that to you with no fear of contradiction. The church of Jesus Christ is being established. May we, by the grace of God, be blessed to see it established in our presence here more and more. You see, it's the passage of Scripture that says this to us. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. You see, the word of God is going forth. Sinners are being saved even today, even now. There are those who are hearing the gospel for the first time or for the hundredth time and who are now coming to Jesus Christ as the gift given by the Father, wrapped in flesh in order to rule and reign over them. One of the things that I didn't mention last week in in that passage of Scripture from Micah, Micah just has wonderful passages of Scripture that many of them you know. What does a man require of thee? I mean, what does the Lord require of thee, O man? Micah 6, 8, to do justice and to walk humbly. Micah chapter 7, verse 19, for he will subdue our iniquities. That's what he does as ruler. That's what he does as king. That's what he does as governor. You see, this governor subdues our iniquities. Aren't you glad that that's what Jesus Christ does? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ saves you from yourself? Aren't you glad that in the reality of the gospel there is a power that sin cannot stand against? For this reason, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of Man, excuse me, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Oh, we thank God for Christmas. But you see, many sinners will not accept this package, if I can put it that way, this gift on these terms. Again, look at the passages of Scripture. We've already spoken of one of them, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. John 19, verse 15. But they cried out concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Away with them! Crucify him. And Pilate says unto them, What shall, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. We want no Messiah come from heaven. We want no Son of God in the flesh. 
We want not God's answer to our problems. We want not God's forgiveness for our sins. We have no king but Caesar, that tyrant. Sin is a tyrant too, don't you know? There are people who refuse to give up their sin because they're afraid of what it might mean for Jesus Christ to rule and reign over them. I said to somebody very close to me this past week, you have to destroy that idol of self. And it's only through Christ that it can be destroyed. And that's what Christ does. He sets us free. He sets us free from the, from the terrible reign, the horrible reign of sin. You see, faith accepts the gift as it's offered. God the Father gives to sinners the gift of His Son in order that He might govern and rule over them. Many balk at the idea of the Father's gifts ruling and reigning over them. But let me show you the encouragements that the Father gives to sinners in order that they might receive this Christmas gift. You see, this passage just keeps going on. (laughs) I'm not going to keep going on, but this passage keeps going on. And what I want you to see is this. Here we have this idea of the Father's gift given to sinners, and it's given in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a a gift who rules and reigns. So what does the Father do in order to encourage you to embrace His rule? He sets forth the nature of His rule in four distinguishing terms. He wants you to know. The Father wants you to know. The Father's giving you a preview of what's wrapped up in that gift. He wants you to know that this one who He has given to you is a wonderful counselor. He wants you to know that this one who came in flesh suffered the very things that you suffer. He wants you to know that this very one who, who, came, who came in flesh and who was rejected by man is able, to, is, is able to comfort you in all of your rejection. You see, this one who came in flesh knows your situation. And because of that, he's a wonderful counselor. Because of that, he has the counsels of eternity with him. Because of that, he has the counsels of peace with him. Because of that, he is able to speak a word of comfort to your soul. Why would you not take this gift? You see, the Father is encouraging you. He says, I'll take this gift, he says, because you see, this is a wonderful counselor I'm giving to you. You say the word kind. Again, people understand their need for, for for, for, for this counsel that is given and the counsel being given from the word of God by the word of God himself. Isn't that wonderful? The Word of God living, giving us counsel from the Word of God written. Oh, we thank God for that. And so the Father doesn't stop there, does He? He says, oh, by the way, not only is He, not only is He this wonderful counsel, He's the mighty God. What an amazing designation this is for this gift that the Father gives. And there's a sense in which the Father is giving the gift of His Son, Lord Jesus Christ, or in the Gospel of John, it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming forth from the bosom of the Father. He says to, he says to uh, uh, Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Again, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This, this, this idea of the, of the mighty God. And sometimes people say, well, you know, it's the mighty God, it's not the almighty God. I've had people try to make this case for me, uh, to, to me. Well, you go down there in, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, and guess who's called the mighty God? It's God Almighty Himself. It's Jehovah. It's Yahweh who is called the mighty God. This designation is a designation of Jesus' true deity. And so there he is. Oh, what a gift. He gives another encouragement. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. 
Well, this one has always caused a little bit of uh, a little bit of question in the in the minds of the commentators because how can God the Father give one who is an everlasting Father? Well, what's interesting is this: is that this is really a designation of Jesus Christ in His relationship to time and the gift of salvation. He becomes the Father. He becomes the source of eternal salvation for all those who believe. And in addition to that, this kingly rule that He exercises is the rule of a Father. It's the rule of a comforting father. It's the rule of a mighty father. You see, the idea now here is this, is that this gift that is given by God the Father is one who exhibits all the fatherly aspects of what a righteous and just king should be. That's how he encourages you. And the last encouragement that he gives to you, though there are many more, but in this passage of Scripture, the last encouragement that he gives to you, he reminds you that this gift This gift who is a wonderful counselor, this gift, again, veiled in flesh, this gift who is the mighty God, this gift who is the everlasting Father, this gift, by the way, is the Prince of Peace. Well, you see, there's something especially wonderful about that because we know that the great oppressor of our souls is sin and we know that sin always causes this reaction in the nature of God against sin We know that sin is a destroyer. We see what sin did in the Garden of Eden. There was Adam not running toward God in his sin, but running away from God. There was Adam fearful of God now. But what does this Messiah do? He comes as the Prince of Peace. Yes, the Christmas hymn is true. God and sinners reconciled. This is the beauty. This is the wonder of Christmas. My soul reconciled to God Almighty on His terms. You see, many want to be reconciled to God on their own terms. You see, God knows my my particular sin, but he'll accept me anyway. God is in the business of killing sin. And so again, we see here this idea of the Prince of Peace. What a wonderful concept this is. We look around us in this world and we say, where is the peace? I think last Sunday night we we sang that song. Who was it? Uh, Henry Longfellow. I think he wrote it during the time of the sinful war. war, During the time of the Civil War. What is it? Uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old sweet carol. I heard them say, of peace on earth. And it goes on, the second stanza. Again, that, that, it, that I forget how it goes, but it mocked the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Longfellow goes on, though. What does he say? He says, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. He says, the right will win, the, you know, the, the right prevail. You see, God brings peace. He brings peace between sinners and himself in the person of his son. And now being reconciled to God, we can be reconciled one to another. You see people, again, we see it in our day. I've thought to myself, you know, you have people who formally reject Jesus Christ and are not reconciled to God. How can they be reconciled to one another? Oh, but you see, now that God and sinners are reconciled with one another, sinners and sinners can be reconciled with one another. So my brothers and sisters, here we see this whole emphasis of God's gift to sinners. Well, where do we see this gift opened up? Where do we see this gift unpacked? We see it in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, in the church of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us who are here have unpacked that that package. You've unpacked the mystery of the incarnation, not in its fullness, But you understand that Jesus Christ took on human flesh 
in order to die for your own sins. You see, he didn't send out an angel to redeem you. An angel doesn't share in your nature. He didn't even raise up a good man to save you. A good man shares your sinful nature. He sent down his own son. You've not fully fathomed the mystery of the incarnation, but you have something, a sense of it. You've unpacked it a little bit there, haven't you? And when you have unpacked it, what have you seen? That in his essential nature, it is the Son of God himself, eternal, holy, co-equal, co-essential with the Father. You've unpacked that. In unpacking it, what have you done? You've seen that there is this righteous rule, this righteous governing that God calls you to live by. And so when the world calls you to live by its standards, you say, no, I'm living by another standard. You say, no, I'm living by another constitution, if we can say it that way. And don't get me wrong when I say that. I'm not calling for sedition or anything like that. But you're taking your stand on the word of God. And so there you are, walking in the following world according to the light of the scripture. You're listening for those voices who say, to the law and to the testimony. And so there it is in the church of Jesus Christ. But other things we see. Oh, what wonderful counsel we have in the church of Jesus Christ. Counsel from the word of God, from the word of God. You see the idea now, again, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning, reconciled. You see, this is where we ought to see in very clear pictures what reconciliation looks like. No longer laboring under the burden of my own sins, but now having this peace with God. No longer laboring under the burden of my sinful attitudes towards you. Now peace with one another. You see, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. That this, past, that this gift is, reve- is revealed or is unpacked. And you may say to me, how is this ever going to come? How is, this, how is all this ever going to come to pass? Why well, I refer you back to the passage of Scripture. Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God has put his personal name next to this promise. Brothers and sisters, this promise will not fail. And what God is calling you to do here and now is to embrace by faith, to reaffirm by faith this great gift that the Father offers to sinners at Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that he was willing to humble himself and come as a man in order that he might save men, sinners, Father. We thank you for that. And we ask and we pray now, Father, as we, in this coming week, uh, begin to focus more and more on the day that we call Christmas. May we, as your people, not lose sight, Father, of what Christmas truly is. It is that kingdom of peace. It is that kingdom of the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. It is that reality, that mystery, that glory of God manifest in the flesh in order that sinners might be saved. Thank you for this, we pray, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.